Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So guys, what did you all end up dressing as for Halloween? The sleepy parent of a seven-month-old child. Uh, sorry, a seven-month-old pumpkin. Because that's what my child was dressed up as Halloween. The whole pumpkin thing, little hat, little green stem. I will say I did not dress up, but I dressed my dog up as a hot dog because she is part dachshund and also as a skeleton dog and went to a DC uh, Halloween dog parade, which was very satisfying Ooh. and featured several winning costumes, including a derailed Metro car, uh, which is that's for all of our listeners in Washington, D.C., where we've been having some problems with our our metro system um, and a Zoom meeting, which was a dog in a little like cardboard cutout window with pictures of other dogs arranged on the top, like the little squares and Zoom. So that was also good. That is brilliant. I, I think that after the age of I'm going to go on a limb and say 18 or so. Dressing up for Halloween is eh, a little marginal, but it is always appropriate to channel those energies into dressing up your dependent mammals, whether they are babies or dogs. But I feel like this is the moment where, as like the parents of small mammals and small creatures, where like we can get back into the game with the group costume combination. You know, the group costume bit, maybe we were not individually adorable, but collectively, like the adorable levels really kind of like skyrocket through the roof at a certain point. So then the question is, what collective costume would the Rational Security crew show up to a Halloween party in? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I feel like it'd be like the Prime Minister of Australia, President Biden, and, <laughs> uh, you know, French President uh, Macron, I think is the way to do it. Hear, hear me out. A, a bald eagle, a kangaroo, and a wheel of brie. I love it. That is the Rational Security AUKUS Halloween costume. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the editor strikes back. Because on this episode today, I am joined not only by my friends, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. But the secret weapon of the rational security team the unofficial fourth permanent host now the official fourth rotating host jen patcha howell our editor hello jen hello it's good to be on jen is just the brooding omnipresence in the sky over all lawfare podcasts so she's certainly there in spirit she presides she pre she abides the <laughs> jen abides i'm somewhere somewhere in the 330s with number of episodes of Rational Security. Oh my gosh. That is pretty exceptional. Um, well, we are happy to have your solid hand 
on the ship of state, so to speak, here at Rational Security for all these episodes and to have your contributions today as we break down some topics in the news. This week for the Nuclear Tongue Twister edition, we'll be discussing three items taken from the news. First up, our stand on Havana. While pressure is building on the Biden administration to take a stand on Havana syndrome, our understanding of what is happening to U.S. diplomats and other officials remains limited. What should the United States do next? Topic number two, supersonic new ballistic exquisite blastidocious. In the last few weeks, China's... (laughs) In the last few weeks, China has unveiled a new supersonic missile, technically hypersonic missile, capable of delivering nuclear warheads past U.S. defense systems. At the same time, the United States has announced a new technology that allows nuclear warheads to explode with quote-unquote exquisite timing that dramatically magnifies their effectiveness. Is this beginning of a new sort of arms race or something else entirely? And topic three, international lampoons, European vacation. President Biden is meeting with a number of his foreign counterparts in Europe this week to discuss issues ranging from the global economy to climate change. Will Biden be able to repair these key relationships, or is the Trump era still weighing down the United States' international standing? First topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So starting in 2016, U.S. officials, particular diplomats, but also some intelligence and other officials stationed abroad, began reporting Uh, some serious neurological symptoms, headaches, loss of vision, nausea, um, that ranged from unpleasant to pretty disabling. And these reports started in Cuba, and hence the, the name that we all call this, the Havana Syndrome. And fairly quickly, the Trump administration became convinced that this was caused by a new type of uh, weapon that was being used against U.S. personnel. Now, the nature of the hypothesized weapon, whether it was acoustic or whether it was sending radio waves, that was not made clear, but that was the working assumption. In in the years since, this syndrome has been reported uh, in lots of other places around the world, India, Colombia, and there is a growing view among members of the government and in particular in Congress that this does represent, in fact, a new type of weapon whether it's being used uh, by the Russians or some other entity is is less clear. However, there's also a lot of skepticism among scientists and some in in journalism about whether or not this syndrome really is caused by a new weapon, or or if in fact it's a kind of psychosomatic illness. And over the last several years, both sides have made their case with increasing aggressiveness. And earlier this year, President Biden signed a new law, the Havana Act, which authorizes the State Department and the CIA to provide compensation to those individuals that uh, it believes were affected, suggesting that increasingly the government uh, believes that this is caused by a a new weapon. So, Quinta, you know, I know you've thought about this a lot. Is it fair to say that we don't know what is behind Havana syndrome. And if so, how should the government respond, given that there are two profoundly different explanations for this situation with two very different implications for what the appropriate policy response is? I think this is a really thorny topic, 
precisely because, as you say, it, it touches on a lot of different areas and that the implications are really different. So first off, I want to begin by saying that I don't doubt that any of the people whom the government thinks may be affected by Havana syndrome are going through pain and suffering. If you read the accounts of people who have been identified as perhaps suffering from from this, you know, they they describe migraines, brain trauma, you know, difficulty focusing. That is all extremely, extremely real. And I should also say I have some very good friends who are disabled and have chronic illnesses, and I have watched them really struggle to be taken seriously by doctors and have their illnesses treated. And so I'm extremely sympathetic to how difficult that can be, especially to somebody who is, you know, suddenly going through this a situation where their body is no longer acting in the way that they're they're used to it behaving and they're facing a medical and a scientific ex- establishment that may not be particularly interested in taking them seriously. So I want to just put that on the table to begin with. That being said, I do think that the existing information that we have on the table seems to me to be pretty far from showing that this is a weapon of any kind, much less who would be using that weapon. There's been speculation that this is somehow caused by microwaves. I know Cheryl Rofer, who is uh, used to work at the Los Alamos National Laboratory and is a, a chemist um, and worked on uh, issues around microwave technology, has written in foreign policy about how she's not convinced by that argument just because of the way that microwaves work. You sort of wouldn't expect to find damage to the brain before damage to the skin, right? Like if you think about reheating a burrito, for example, it's usually the outside of the burrito in in the microwave that gets hot and the inside is still ice cold. I know I have experienced this with microwaving burritos. And so there are just a lot of questions that remain. And my worry is that I think that the people who are suffering here deserve certainly the government to take it seriously and deserve medicine to take it seriously. And I think that, you know, generally speaking, I have no problem with the fact that Congress has authorized paying for the healthcare of people who are suffering. Generally, I think it's a great idea for people who have chronic illnesses and disabilities to receive more healthcare. But I do worry that the sort of political environment seems to be sliding into a space where the only acceptable answer is that this is a weapon. I know Senator Marco Rubio made some comment to the effect of, you know, if if you don't think that this is a weapon, then you know you're you're siding with the Russians or something like that. And that seems to me to ironically undercut the seriousness and care with which I think accounts of illness need to be treated, if that makes sense. That you know, that the people who are suffering deserve to have this taken seriously. And part of taking it seriously is engaging in a careful analysis of what may actually be causing this. And I should say also, you know, I think that Americans often look down on illnesses that are understood to be mental right? So psychogenic, for example, there's a condition of psychogenic non-epileptic seizures where 
what's causing the seizure is not epilepsy, but you are still having a seizure. And people often resist being diagnosed with that because it's interpreted by doctors as, you know, this seizure isn't real. And the thing is, what's causing the seizure is different. But at the end of the day, right, you're still in pain and you're still having a seizure. So I think this is tough in part because it's happening within this sort of broader structure of medicine and of science where only certain illnesses can be taken seriously. And so we end up in this situation where signaling seriousness in terms of how we're talking about the illness can have a sort of the backward effect of, I think, not actually taking it with the seriousness that it deserves to be taken. Yeah. So I think we need to caveat this conversation a a little bit on on a few fronts. The first is that we, as general members of the public, have a far from complete picture about either what's happening or even the information on these topics, right? We're we're working off media accounts, some of which are partial, many of which are secondhand, as well as independent analyses, some of which have come out from academic sources or scientific sources, things like that. It's a partial picture. Hopefully, the government has more than what we have. Maybe they don't, but th- usually they do. Um, and if nothing else, at least on what is actually happening to the American uh, civil servants, diplomats, uh, intelligence officers, other people who've been affected by this, both in the United States in a handful of cases, but primarily overseas. And then we see this move, apparently, as relayed to us by these media sources in the briefings of people going to Congress from the administration, from the agencies saying, we are moving in the direction of the conclusion that this is a directed energy weapon, some sort of activity. We think Russia is the most likely candidate, but the things they're missing are any sort of smoking gun actually tying this stuff to Russia and then an actual mechanism in place. So what is that conclusion based on? It's not clear exactly. Like, And this is something I hope legislators are asking about. And the administration itself is asking very clearly, like, why are we drawing this conclusion? In the public sphere, um, the things we do know are that Russia, both A, tends to be a much more risk-taking actor in its international behavior, particularly when targeting who it perceives to be enemy intelligence uh, or rival, I should say, intelligence operatives and rival officials. This would not be the first time that they have taken actions that put the health and well-being of foreign diplomats in the United States or of other countries at risk. So they have that risk tolerance. Frankly, a lot of, not many countries do actually. So that's actually kind of exceptional place and puts it on a short list. It has the technological capacity to do this. It has the sorts of global network that might be able to do this in the diverse array of geographic areas where it's happened. There's a lot of kind of circumstantial evidence, I think is maybe the best way to think about it, to say, well, yeah, on the list of entities that could do this and that might want to, Russia features really prominently. But you really have to ask yourself what that gets you without that firm link. Because there are still, I think, reasonable explanations about how this could be happening in ways that, even though they may seem a little strange, that that don't necessarily involve this foreign actor, or in which the foreign actor may be doing something not as nefarious. In the 1970s, 1980s, some of these prior stories we hear about Russia engaging with microwaves, even targeting them towards U.S. properties, U.S. personnel, was actually believed to be part of an intelligence gathering effort, um, using microwaves to read different types of signals and gather intelligence, not to actually harm them, but it had negative consequences for these people are believed to have. And we have actually a confession, at least one that came out as part of a civil settlement and civil lawsuit where, you know, the U.S. government says, yeah, the Russians actually do, we believe, do engage in these sorts of experiments, I believe specifically with microwaves in that case, and that we ha- they have some technological capacity to do things where they can cause physical symptoms in somebody by virtue of some of these activities. So it's there, but without that sort of link, how do you respond to it? You know, are you going to treat this like an actual attack on your personnel? I think 
think that's really what we need to see people drilling down on here and to hear statements like Senator Rubio saying essentially, yeah, you've got to treat this like an attack or else you're on you know, the side of wrong is really problematic because that leads very quickly to very escalatory behavior. I should say for the Biden administration, even more problematic is that it appears that Congress is kind of maybe headed in that direction, even a little ahead of the Biden administration itself. And that caused lots of problems because you can see Congress doing lots of things that actually may make this harder for the Biden administration. You know, a classic example is that we saw in the coronavirus context, in a terrorism related context at time is Congress could try and set up a civil liability regime by which people who claim to be affected by this condition could try and pursue civil litigation against states they believe are responsible. I actually think people affected by it in the United States actually might be able to already make a claim under the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, the JASTA Act in 2016, if I'm if I'm thinking about the jurisdictional parameters of that correctly from memory, but I think they might. You know, but even then for the broader universe, Congress could enact something like that. That could become a diplomatic headache if the Biden administration doesn't come up with some sort of better explanation. So we've got to get down to the ground truth before we start moving towards any sort of solution here. But the Biden administration needs to kind of get this narrative intact and is suffering for the Trump administration having failed to do that so for many years, because without that sense of satisfaction of a narrative of what's actually happening, people are going to start taking their own action and that can lead in some very potentially troubling directions. Scott, to to your point about Congress, I mean, one thing that is, I think, unfortunate here is that Congress does seem to have sort of decided already what its posture on Havana syndrome is beyond just we want to help those people who are suffering, which to Quintus' point, is is great, and there should be more of that generally. The the Havana Act uh, is a, a backronym, as Congresses want to do, uh, and it stands for uh, Helping American Victims Afflicted by Neurological Attacks Act, right? Havana Act. And so just in the name, in the title, there is this implication that this is, we have decided, Congress, right? And Congress passed this unanimously, which is not something Congress frequently does that this is in fact an attack. And I think it really does speak to to the kind of unfortunate reality that Quinta mentioned, which is that for some reason in the United States in particular, I think it is just very difficult to say that a disease or a disorder is psychogenic without implicitly discounting it. But where the pain comes from is, as Quinta pointed out, irrelevant. The pain exists. And, and one thing that does worry me is that, you know, when you combine this, this stigma, which makes it very difficult for someone to say, I take you seriously, I think this is purely psychogenic, but I take you seriously, right? You're not, I don't think you're making this up. I don't think you're a malingerer or you're a hypochondriac or have Munhausen syndrome. Like, I think you are really suffering from a serious thing. It's just that minds are tricky things. And sometimes, unfortunately, they malfunction in these coordinated ways. Because it's so hard to say that in American culture, and one of the few things that Congress can get behind is national security threats and Russia and all of that. There is this pressure to both within Congress and also within the intelligence agencies that are investigating this and in particular have employees that are themselves being affected by this to push in this direction. And look, I don't think anyone on this podcast is, um, you know, w- would view it as impossible to imagine Russia doing this, right? It's 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 not like Putin is a, is a nice guy and would never do this. Um, it's just that until you have real evidence that something that can be explained by a psychogenic phenomenon, which happen very very frequently, and there are case reports of things like this happening for you know decades and decades, if not centuries, right? 
you know, until you have evidence to suggest that this is some new weapon, it does strike me as quite irresponsible to have this growing consensus that this is some sort of covert attack. To be clear, just as it is irresponsible to, you know, mouth off on Twitter about how Havana syndrome is all fake and this is just all, you know, made up, right? That's equally irresponsible. And so it's it's unfortunate that we can't have a more nuanced uh, discussion about this. You know, what I think it comes down to is, is I think policymakers have to take both possibilities really seriously. And that means setting up policy contingencies until you actually know what's happening. So it means that you may prepare to take a response before, you know, you actually can attribute to any particular state actor, but you also prepare for the possibility that you're never going to reach that state. And then how do you handle it? How do you support these people who are living through these, these conditions? So before we wrap, Scott, I have a question for you, which is imagine in the hypothetical world that, you know, next month, the CIA announces that they figured it out and it actually is a directed energy weapon of some hitherto unknown sort directed by the Kremlin against American officials. What is the reasonable American response to that? Would If you treat that as an attack, is that an act of war? Like from a sort of both a policy and an international legal perspective, like what follows from that? Because I think that might help put into perspective what it means when, you know, Senator Rubio and others sort of frame it in this way? I think that's the big question. And that's why it's so hard to know. Because look, I mean, depending on who this actor is, this is some sort of rogue element, whereas a criminal, you know, faction of some sort that somehow is doing this or some rogue element in intelligence service, that becomes an easier problem to tackle in a way. If it's a near peer power like Russia engaged in this deliberately as a matter of policy. And not only that, like actually targeting to cause harm, which I think certainly could rise to the level of attack. I think there's a question on international law, whether it would be like a level of severity to constitute one that would warrant self-defense. The United States, it takes a very low idea of that threshold. The international community generally takes a much higher threshold. So there'll be a debate there as to whether you could actually act militarily in response, which you're certainly going to see is a major, major diplomatic rupture. I mean, I think you would expect to see lots of Russian diplomats sent home. And again, I think you might see, because there are these people who do have supports in Congress and other people, you might see things like efforts to get them compensation. And it wouldn't be inappropriate necessarily. This is what happens sometimes when one government injures the nationals of another government. They They pursue claim settlements. They ask for monetary compensation. They say, you need to make our citizens whole. And they would become part of that debate. Now, are you going to get that in the current state of U.S.-Russia relations? It's not 100% clear. Probably the best thing you can hope to do is to get it to stop by making it painful enough for Russia and getting lots of the international community on board to make it as painful as possible for Russia. But we've seen Russia do pretty horrendous things in the last few years. We've seen the international community respond, and it has tamped down some of the worst behavior, but it hasn't ended it. It hasn't necessarily responded to it. We're talking about like poisoning of former Russian intelligence officers, things like that. It is, it's still engaged in a lot of problematic activity. So that's really the the threshold question here. In some ways, this becomes a more difficult issue if it isn't Russia, right? Because we wouldn't have necessarily a go-to solution if this were a psychogenic, mass psychogenic illness. You know, not to say that we would have an easy solution if this was a Russian attack on U.S. personnel. But if we don't have an external enemy here, what is the internal factor that is affecting all of these U.S. personnel? I think that's really insightful. Let's change the focus of our conversation from directed energy weapons to just 
directed weapons uh, related to the United States, because we've seen some really interesting developments around both the U.S. and foreign, particularly Chinese nuclear capabilities, particularly delivery vehicle capabilities in the case of China in the last few weeks. Just over a week ago, I think, we saw senior U.S. officials, specifically Chief of Staff Chairman uh, Mark Milley, acknowledge that China appears to have successfully or mostly successfully tested a hypersonic missile. Uh, This is a vehicle that could deliver a nuclear warhead at super, super fast, above the speed of sound speeds on a route that would allow it to much more effectively evade missile defense systems in the United States, deliver that payload to the mainland United States or whatever its target is in a way that the United States would be much harder time defending against than conventional missiles and delivery systems. And then a few days later, we heard the United States, not directly in a response, but I also, but I don't think the timing was necessarily entirely coincidental, have a number of officials go on the record, but anonymously talking about a technological development that the United States has had, where they've developed a technology that essentially allows nuclear weapons to detonate with a certain degree of, as there's a quote from the media article attributing this to U.S. officials, exquisite timing in terms of how these nuclear devices detonated so that they have a maximum impact on the ground, exert maximum pressure on structures there in a way that actually makes nuclear weapons in the United already in the United States arsenal massively more effective strategically in accomplishing whatever their strategic objectives is. A question I have for you guys, and I think I'll start, Alan, with you on this one, is what should we be making of this? Does this look like an arms race or is it too quick to jump to say that this is the beginning of an arms race? Could this be something different? So I definitely think it's an arms race. Whether it's a destabilizing arms race is, I think, a separate question. So if the two great world powers are investing lots of money in research and development into more spectacular ways of killing each other, that's kind of by definition an arms race. And we should not be all that surprised that we're having an arms race because we've had for several decades now the rise of China as a great power. For most of that time, the competitive aspect of the China's US relationship was kind of submerged behind economic cooperation, increased globalization, and the relatively peaceful kind of grand strategy of Chinese leaders before Xi Jinping. Right. This has changed for a variety of reasons, one of which is Xi Jinping. Relatively peaceful, being very, very generous, but not wolf warrior aggressive. Yeah, re- re- relatively peaceful, right? Relative to what is happening now, certainly relative to relative to how other authoritarian great powers in history have, have acted, right? This has changed for a variety of reasons. Some of this is because Xi Jinping is the head of China. Some of this is because of, you know, Donald Trump, and some of this is because of kind of the natural butting of heads of these two powers. And so we're seeing a lot of this suppressed military competition express itself now in a kind of accelerating fashion, right? Part of this is, you know, arms race when it comes to nuclear technology. Part of this is tensions over Taiwan, so on and so on, right? So there's no question to me, I think, that we're seeing the beginning of some sort of arms race. The question is, is it a destabilizing one or a stabilizing one? And what I mean by that is, There are some technologies, in particular, some technologies around nuclear weapons that destabilize the balance of power, destabilize the kind of mutually assured destructive element of nuclear weapons. So, for example, you know, when the U.S. started investing heavily in missile defense, that was thought in some quarters to actually be quite destabilizing 
move for the kind of balance of nuclear forces between the US and the Soviet Union, because now there was no, there was less of a credible sense that if one side uses nuclear weapons, both sides lose. And to, to be clear, obviously a world in which there were no nuclear weapons would be preferable given the dangers and the possibility for mistakes and accidents and overreactions, et cetera, et cetera, right? But if you have a world in which you have nuclear weapons and they're not going away anytime soon, right? And China, I mean, the United States obviously has a ton of nuclear weapons and China certainly has enough nuclear weapons. Then the question is, what advances will increase stability? And, and so I, I am not a nuclear deterrence theorist, but it does strike me as plausible that technologies that make it clear to the other side that they cannot effectively defend against nuclear weapons, right? Even uh, if they strike first, because the other side has a sufficiently robust uh, response capability, either because of submarines or something else, that, that that might overall be a good thing for nuclear stability. Um, you know, whether or not that's how these new technologies are perceived, to me, remains in question. But I think it is important to distinguish between an arms race, which definitely is existing, and kind of a, a heightening of, of nuclear risk, which may or may not come to pass because because of this. So I will say I'm far from an expert on nuclear missile technology. And I read some of the explanations about what specifically China was testing or may have been testing. And I don't understand it. So Scott, I will leave that to you. And Alan, I will leave that to you. I will. I mean, it doesn't make me feel better about the safety of the world that this is happening. And I will say that the rhetoric on the American side didn't fill me with confidence that this isn't going to go a bad way. Specifically, I mean, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, made a comment saying, this isn't a Sputnik moment, but it's pretty close, which I know uh, arms control experts, including Jeffrey Lewis, who's writing foreign policy, sort of suggested that may be an overstatement. But the American press basically went with that and said, Millie said this is a Sputnik moment, which, you know, he said it was kind of maybe a Sputnik moment. And so it did seem to me like there was a sort of eagerness maybe to hype this up as a, a big deal and something that people should be alarmed about. And in context of just, you know, the increasing tensions between the United States and China, which, to be clear, I think are often over things that there is worth there being tension over, like, for example, you know, detention and ethnic cleansing in Xinjiang, nevertheless makes me kind of nervous about where this might be headed and whether or not people in the United States are, are uh, viewing it with as cool heads as we might want to, to have. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I understand the reaction and the concern. And I mean, I share it. It's hard to not get sort of 
worked up a little bit by the thought of China being able to deliver a nuclear weapon from a direction that we're not prepared to stop. But we've had nuclear capability for the last 80 years. It's been used once. Well, twice, yes, twice. And the world saw how terrible it was, and it hasn't happened again. I mean, the U.S. has been working on this kind of hypersonic technology for a number of years, and I think it's, it is only natural for China to want to respond to that. And I can't say I'm comforted by the fact that they said that the, they missed their target because it was off by 20 miles. That doesn't actually put me at ease at all. But what I would say is we've been in this situation, you know, where other powers are developing nuclear weapons and we still haven't used them against each other. So I think there's a power there. There is, maybe it's Pollyannish of me, but there is something underlying this. It is like, that is just a little bit too too bad for us to actually use. I don't think you're being Pollyannish. I think it's that having credible second strike capabilities is what, at the end of the day, creates as stable of a kind of nuclear standoff as possible. And again, even a stable nuclear standoff is still a nuclear standoff. And as they say, shit happens. So it'd be better if we didn't have any nuclear standoffs, but here we are. To me, what would be really scary is if one or the other side developed real anti-nuclear submarine capabilities. So there is a large U.S. nuclear submarine fleet. And when I say nuclear submarine, I'm referring both to the fact that they are powered by uh, nuclear energy, which allows them to basically stay submerged anywhere around the world for long periods of time. And they have nuclear weapons on board. And so they can fire a, you know ICBM from anywhere. And these floating stealth nuclear weapons platforms, um, of which the United States has a ton and of which China has enough, those are the things that really ensure whatever level of stability that we have right now, because both sides understand that no first strike capability, right? even if they wipe out every major city that the other side has, every major bunker and land-based nuclear installation that the other side has, right, there will be enough nuclear submarines with captains who have orders, you know, in the, the the safe saying what to do in the event of a nuclear strike on the mainland to ensure everyone's destruction. So, you know, if we get to a point where one side develops the ability to find the other side's nuclear submarines, that's a huge problem. That that would cause a level, I think, of instability we have not seen for decades. Whether or not these these new technologies of hypersonic missiles and better timing mechanisms. Uh, I think they're, they're less concerning, though, again, obviously not great. This is the, the point where I do my Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove impression. Why didn't you tell them? <laughs> the only point was a doomsday device. <laughs> is that you tell people about it? Yeah, it's very good. It's Thank very you. Good. Thank I you. feel like you, you sound like Peter Sellers and I sound sort of vaguely like Rodney Dangerfield. So... Um, <laughs> A wonderful alternative casting, though. I like that version. I, I The one thing I'll say, I, I think that's fundamentally right what Alan has said uh, and, Jen, what you were alluding to, which is that, you know, this doesn't change the fundamental balance underlying as long as you still have this major, you know, 
repercussions, possibility second strike capability. But it does, you know, it actually does do certain things. A, like it does make missile defenses, like at least our current iteration, like a less valuable investment. Uh, and it's kind of notable. Remember, missile, de- missile defense systems were controversial precisely because people were worried they were going to upset the nuclear balance. Because by protecting ourselves, we were going to encourage, make other states feel less secure, maybe try and act and preempt us against our missile defense system, or to develop things like this that penetrate those systems and become more dangerous in the future. So who knows? I suspect it's going to instead lead us to try and develop more strong missile defense systems that will counteract these technologies. Maybe a bit of an arms race there. Great whether that's the right use of resources or not, but it certainly makes people feel better that they'll be able to insulate that first wave of attacks if something were to happen or if there were an isolated attack or by like an actor like North Korea or something that maybe will get might get this technology one day, but doesn't have the capability to have like a major counterman, but they could get one through that hurts a lot of people, kills a lot of people. But the flip side of this is actually there may actually be like kind of a good side about this, which has gotten at a lot in the U.S. side, but actually I think applies to the Chinese side too as well, whether we view that as good or not, which is that this lets you do a lot more with a lot less. Um, nuclear arsenals are incredibly expensive. They're also expensive and difficult to maintain. They age very quickly. You've got to have all these silos and components and teams monitoring them all around the country and different parts of the world. And there's inherently, as you have like the proliferation of more and more of these weapons, less so in the United States, more so in other countries, but there's a greater risk of something happen with the proliferation, some third party getting their hands on it, something along those lines. Uh, and in theory, these sorts of technologies make that less necessary because you allow countries to have a much more substantial first and second straight response capability with fewer nuclear weapons. Um, and they've already suggested, you know, people have already started leaning into the idea that the U.S. development, this exquisite timing in their bombs will let the United States have less nuclear weapons and like save tax money, which itself might be a, a positive thing. So I'm not sure it's actually this fight towards more efficient nuclear weapons is necessarily categorically bad in all the ways, uh, even though obviously the, the prospect of having these sorts of capabilities launched against you is, is a terrifying one. So I don't I don't have a transition here. Quinta, you have one job. <laughs> Segways. I tried. I this couldn't come up with anything. This podcast rises and falls on segways. <laughs> if it rises and falls on segways, it falls. I gotta say, we are. If it rises and falls, we are doomed. Joe Biden is in Europe, folks. He's in Europe, and which is between the United States and China. For if you go one direction, but not if you go another direction. <laughs> uh, but if you're flying to Glasgow where Joe Biden is currently attending an international climate conference, then it is en route to China. And that's my segue. So the New York Times had an interesting piece in advance of Biden's grand trip to Europe about Biden's sort of rhetoric early on in his presidency about how America is back, uh, that after the sort of bellicosity and aggressiveness and go-it-aloneness of the Trump administration that Biden is, you know, he's returned, he's ready to break bread with our European allies. America has returned to the international scene. And the question that the Times posed is essentially, has Biden made good on that and can he? Most notably, of course, he's showing up in Glasgow at this climate summit without uh, his big domestic spending legislation that would include major climate policies passed. Congress is still hashing out the details. Uh, There's a lot that is up in the air. 
many things remain sort of extremely unclear. Of course, there is the uh, the dust up between the United States and France over the AUKUS deal. And so the question is, is America back? And I think the, the thing that I found particularly interesting about this is how to understand Biden's position, not only as the president after Trump, but perhaps the president before a Republican successor. We don't know because so much of what we saw under Trump was sort of tearing up executive agreements that have been made by President Obama and sort of going his own way. And so as much as Biden can say, America is back, here I am, I'm ready to negotiate on climate, I'm ready to be a good ally, there's, of course, a limited amount that he can do to commit the United States to that in the absence of congressional action. And as we're currently seeing, it can be kind of hard to get Congress to move in the direction that Biden wants to do with only a one vote Senate majority. So what do you all think about that? Alan, what's what's your thoughts? I, I, I think America is definitely back in the very narrow sense that its diplomatic engagement is going to be greater than during the Trump administration, though that is an exceedingly low bar. But I do agree with you, Quinta, that there are, are real limits to what Biden can do. Part of this is, as you point out, there is a deeply divided Congress. You know, There's very little wiggle room. And Biden just can't credibly promise, unfortunately, that if, you know, for example, the international community decides on some new, very stringent climate goals, that he's going to be able to deliver U.S. implementation on that. And he can say, look, I can do a lot of stuff through executive order, and that's true, but executive orders are less powerful than laws. They are more limited in scope. They can be repealed by the next person and so on and so on. I think that there's a there's a deeper problem for, for Joe Biden, and that is that the effect of the Trump presidency on America's soft power, right, as they say, and just America's fundamental standing cannot be exaggerated, right? The, the fact that Americans elected Donald Trump, right, the fact that Americans elected a right-wing white nationalist, authoritarian populist demagogue. I'm sure I could put some other adjectives in there, but that list will be sufficient for now. You know, the fact that the the, the leader of the free world um, as America, I think rightly considered itself to be, and as the, the rest of the world rightly considered it to be, that they elected someone like Donald Trump means that they could elect someone like Donald Trump again. And it would take a politician of truly what a unique gifts to to deal with that. And I think comparing this to Bush and Obama is instructive, right? You know, by the end of the Bush administration, America's standing in the world had been severely weakened, mostly because of the Iraq war, but also because of some other stuff. But at least there was a story you could tell about how, you know, in 2000, we elected a Republican, but like whatever, a totally normal Republican. And then this like apocalyptic, totally out of left field thing happened. And there was a big mistake that was made, but you can sort of imagine how this traumatized country would do that. And then, you know, he was soundly rejected in 2008 and America's first black president kind of healing the racial wounds of America, who also happened to be this just like unbelievably gifted politician. I mean, kind of once in a generation politician, you know, managed to rebuild some of that uh, stature. But you you don't have any of those same things here. There was no good reason for America to elect Donald Trump in 2016. Like, there, there's no way to excuse that behavior. That was just an incredibly reckless act by the world's, by, you know, half the voting population of the world's superpower to do that. And Joe Biden, although I think he's like a pretty okay politician, is just not Obama when it comes to 
the roadshow of American greatness and inspiration. So I think there's just a limit to what Joe Biden can do. Now, we should also, I think, be realistic and say, look, Joe Biden doesn't have to fix every problem to be a much more successful American president on the international stage, right? You know, maybe he can advance the climate thing. Um, you know, we, we already know that that there's this big new deal potentially on a global 15% uh, corporate tax so as to avoid all of this corporate tax shenanigans that has been going on. There's a lot of stuff that can happen, right? AUKUS is a is great, even if it upset the, the French, you know, um, they'll probably get over it. CR, CR discussion of that uh, from a few weeks ago. But I do think there are real limits to what to what Biden uh, can do. America is back in the way that an ex comes back and says that they've changed their ways. Right. Ooh. I mean, damn, Jen, <laughs> calling it that out. Brutal. There's a great That's YouTube rough. video that we will link in the show notes of why America is like your abusive boyfriend. And it is. It's a very good video. I mean, it's it's awful to watch, but it's a very funny. But we're video. the bad boy of the international community. Oh, you know who yeah, can say no to real. a bad boy? Diamond Joe and his Trans Am in the White House parking lot. That's not a good down. look Leather in 2021. Oof. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to the fundamental proposition, which is how long of a commitment, how durable commitment can the Biden administration realistically make? The Obama administration used very clever lawyering to try and make a number of political commitments that they put their money on the bet would have substantial staying power, JCPOA, the Paris Agreement. And they basically said, yeah, these are entirely or in substantial part political commitments, not legally binding, not hard to undo by the subsequent administration. But we are going to bet there's political pressure going to keep these in place. And frankly, I think they may have been right if certain Republican candidates have been elected. Instead, you end up with a Republican candidate who is consciously disruptive in a, in a kind of like, you know, entrepreneurial, like disruption in the market sort of sense, like deliberately eschewing and it's fairly hostile towards a lot of conventional pillars of U.S. foreign policy and now is the driving force of the Republican Party. Um, I don't think anybody would really deny that, at least a major driving force. And the Europeans and others aren't completely ignorant of that by any stretch of the imagination. They're fully aware and can look at the numbers and see there's a good chance that if it's not Trump, somebody else of this vein is, is going to come back into power in four years, eight years, 12 years. So what's your bet on how big an endurance is? What can the Biden administration do? In my mind, I think there is one thing the Biden administration can do, and that's they, they actually need to stop hinging things on strictly executive power. You've actually got to start enacting things in the legislation. Really hard to do around things like climate change, where there's strong partisan views that are hard to reconcile, hard to get a vote in the current House and Senate. But there may be other areas where you can do things that put certain fundamental U.S. commitments to Congress and make it harder to politically reverse those. A big area I've written about a lot, and I stand by and hope the Biden administration does something one day, is treaty withdrawal. You know, the Trump administration used and really threatened to use the ability to withdraw from treaties pretty broadly. And it's an authority that they left office with a very express statement saying, we think this is strictly the president's authority. Congress has no say in it. That I think is legally wrong. And that Congress could do a lot to contest or the Biden administration could do a lot to reverse. And if we're worried about a future Trump presidency or somebody modeled on them withdrawing from the North Atlantic Treaty, withdrawing from the United Nations, withdrawing from the World Health Organization, the Biden administration could take a lot of steps to try and make that harder for them to do with Congress, even with the simple majority in Congress. Senate's a little trickier, depending on what you do with the filibuster. But at least even on its own, the Biden administration could do some things by cutting back on executive power to some extent. 
it's hard to do. It's just you have a, a kind of worked set of incentives to do that because you want executive power in so many areas to still advance your agenda. But only by tying yourself to the mask can you also make commitments that are harder for your, your successor to repudiate. And striking that balance is going to be the real challenge of the Biden administration moving forward, so long as it looks like we're in this very close political moment where Trumpism is still a very real political force that may yet re-enter the White House. I will say, I think you're right about that, Scott, that sort of going through Congress is the is the route to not having this sort of constant jerking back and forth of foreign policy on really crucial issues, including climate. And you're also right that it's going to be really hard to do. And I will say that I, looking at Congress now... I worry that there is understandably a lot of focus on sort of getting big economic legislation and policy through and that there has not been focus on sort of the post-Trump reforms that are sorely needed just in the domestic space, right? So all kinds of, you know, reforms reigning in the executive in various ways that Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith have written about. And I think that's also true when it comes to foreign policy, that there there's a sort of a, more of a need for a, an institutional perspective on the part of both Congress and the executive right now. Maybe once Congress is done with the infrastructure bill and build back better, they'll be able to turn to that. I'm crossing my fingers. I wouldn't bet on it. Well, we are just about at our time, but of course it would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons. Quinta, let me start with you. What is your object lesson for this week? I have a little bit of an odd object lesson this week. It is uh, about the death of Viktor Brokhanov, who most listeners probably have not heard of, but he was the manager of the Chernobyl power plant when the accident occurred uh, in 1986. And he died on October 27th at age 85 in Kiev. And I think, first off, it's pretty amazing that he was still alive um, and is a reminder of how recent Chernobyl was. But also... Reading his obituary reminded me of the incredible uh, HBO miniseries on Chernobyl that aired, I think, a couple of years ago, which I've been thinking a lot about in relation to the COVID pandemic. Because one of the things that the miniseries did incredibly well, and that I know a lot of people who live in the former Soviet Union and people who study the former Soviet Union appreciated, was show how sort of Chernobyl was an accident that happened because of the unique pathologies of how governance in the Soviet Union worked, but it was also an accident where the sort of overwhelming response to it, this incredible mobilization of people to clean up the accident and sort of rebuild, was also enabled by the things that made the Soviet Union unique, a sort of common sense of purpose and unity even in tragedy, and how different the United States is in tragedy is really, really striking that there's not a pulling together, there's a pulling apart. I'm not trying to say, obviously, that the Soviet Union was better, <laughs> that that would be a silly thing to argue, but it is a really interesting thing to watch now in light of the ongoing national tragedy that we're going through and just think about how the particular national stories that we have about individualism and collective good and who is sacrificed for what sort of lead us to respond to tragedy in different ways. And before I do my object lesson, I will second uh, Quinta's suggestion for the HBO series. But also, if you like the HBO series, you should read the book that it is based on Midnight in Chernobyl by the amazing journalist 
Adam Higginbotham. An excellent read. An excellent read. Also an excellent listen. I actually listened to it on audiobook. Uh, I did too. Who reads books anymore? Com- Come on, <laughs> yeah. guys. Of course it is you a, did. It is a compulsive thriller, even though it is a completely nonfiction account. It is, it is amazing to listen to. My object lesson is the one hour long video rollout of the metaverse, which is Facebook's now meta. For more, listen to uh, the Lawfare podcast and uh, the Lawfare post that Quinta and I recently wrote, or that is coming out today. Today being Wednesday, when you listen to this, not today, today, when I'm saying this, but whatever. Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook is changing its name to Meta and is pivoting to the metaverse. And I think this video is worth watching for a number of reasons. I think it's worth watching at 2x speed. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it can, it's a little draggy otherwise, but if you can kind of watch it at 2x speed with subtitles on, it's actually, it's, it's much more engaging. It's worth watching because in some ways it's incredibly cool. A lot of this technology is like magic. In some ways it's uh, incredibly funny unintentionally because Facebook desperately wants to be cool, but they just, they can't do it. They just, they just can't do it. But so many people are wearing leather jackets in that video. I, I know, it was like I know. inexplicable. But, I was so I was like, man, they're really rock and roll over there in Meta. I like it. Edgy. It's what it's what you wear when you don't know what else is cool. Exactly. But you make a lot of money. <laughs> Microsoft also announced that they're gonna do a VR, you know, meeting thing for work, and the avatar in that is also wearing a leather motorcycle jacket. Yeah. So everyone's wearing leather jackets made out of either real cows or digital virtual cows. So, so you know, it's fascinating. It's kind of amusingly uncool. It's deeply dystopian in certain ways. It's like a Black Mirror episode. It's also, I think, just an interesting document. I, I think I look forward to rewatching this video in five or 10 years in the same way that it's actually fun sometimes to rewatch Steve Jobs's famous keynote speech in like 2005 or six or seven when he announced the iPhone, because you can tell that he sort of understood the future and also like deeply did not understand where this was going. And so I think 10 years, when we look back on this, this will be an interesting way of saying, you know, what did people think the metaverse was going to be and what did it become? So either way, it's an interesting historical moment in kind of the history of technology. And so I, I recommend you watch it. But again, watch it at 2x speed. Before we get to our object lessons, I just want to personally thank Quentin Allen for not making me talk about meta or the metaverse on this podcast in this You're episode. You're welcome. Because... I am very proud of being the person in the world who cares about Facebook the absolute least and avoid talking about it wherever possible. And I'm glad to keep my record strong. You're you're such a grumpy millennial dad, Scott. Oh my God, I (laughs) I am. And I've leaned into it so hard. Oh, and I love, and I am so proud of it. It's true. Oh, Facebook. I, I haven't, I haven't even announced the birth of my child on Facebook almost a year ago now. A lot of my friends have no idea it even exists because I haven't logged on in so long. Probably will have to correct that one of these days. That's okay. So for my object lesson, I am pulling off the much vaunted triple hat trick with a triple object, interwoven object lesson. I want to do endorse a really interesting, fun article I read by Ahmed El-Shamzi, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, about how the logo on the ISIS flag, for those who, who may not have had this flag burned in their memory like it is for me, it is, it is a bunch of Arabic characters that are, are kind of handwritten almost. It's actually taken, I think they're actually carved originally, but it's a, it's a black background with a white circle with some additional Arabic characters in the middle. It's like Comic Sans, but Arabic. It, that kind of it kind of feels that way. It's like weirdly antiquated kind of like fonter text. And he writes this really 
really interesting article about how this is actually based off a forgery from, I believe, the 19th century, and that, in fact, it kind of was taken up and used without people fully understanding the context and provides a weird meta, not in the Zuckerberg context, but in the more reasonable context, in length through which to think about a lot of uh, ISIS and its action and its framing of history, I think is really interesting. The second object lesson related is that this article appeared in New Lines magazine, uh, which is a publication I want to endorse to anyone who reads about certainly the Middle East, which is kind of remains their bread and butter, but increasingly they're write, publishing really interesting, great articles about lots of topics related to global affairs. Um, they're associated with the New Lines Institute, which is a new-ish, new think tank of sorts, um, also focused in the Middle East, but kind of branching out into different areas. Just phenomenal scholars, phenomenal work. I think really interesting, well-known articles, great website too. So endorsing that. And then the third aspect of my object lesson is that I listened to this article on a new app that I think is really cool called Speechify, um, which is an app that lets you put text files into an app and then reads it to you in a voice that doesn't sound like a robot from your nightmares. It's not great, but it's but it's good. It's listenable. It's like, you know, just like it's like your most boring friend reading you an article unenthusiastically, <laughs> but it's listenable. And I found it to be a really good boon. I've been trying to get outside more during the day while it's still nice and we still have sunlight and before it gets too cold, because uh, I'm definitely somebody who, who does not like the winter season uh, and, and need my sunlight. And so I've been doing this to listen to articles while I'm going around and I'm really enjoying it. So I thought I would throw that out. So that's it. That's the hat trick, guys. I, I can just imagine an app going, I'm sorry, Scott, I can't do that. I can't read that for you, Scott. You can choose different accents. I believe Gwyneth Paltrow is one of the voices uh, that you can opt into. And they have a couple of other celebrity voices. I think you have to pay extra for those, which I didn't do. But uh, it's a it's an impressive app, I have to say. Like I was like wowed by how well it works. So if you if you ask it to read anything about crystals, then it automatically defaults to the Gwyneth Paltrow voice. But other than that, <laughs> it just <laughs> I just want to congratulate us for getting a not one, but two Kubrick references into this episode. We're really branching well out. Well played. I am dressed like the guy from A Clockwork Orange as I am for all of our episodes. <laughs> the, the, hosts, the hosts don't know that. That's fine. Jen, why don't we let you uh, bring up bring up the, the last of our object lessons here? Sure. Thanks, Scott. So my other hat outside of podcasts is uh, in civic education and Today, the day we are recording this, is Election Day in Virginia. And what I really wanted to highlight is not the people that we see in the terrible commercials every day in the lead up to the election, but all of the unsung heroes who actually make Election Day happen. I've been in those rooms as an election officer. It is not glamorous work. And yet these folks are there from usually you know, 5 a.m. until 9 or 10 p.m. And they are there to make sure that democracy works the way it's supposed to. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all of those people who are engaging in civic life in a very meaningful yet unrecognized way. Second that. Well, thank you, Jen. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your friends and loved ones. 
Our audio engineer and producer this week is Hamza Shatu of Groat Radio. Our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell, whose voice you've heard throughout this episode. On behalf of my co-host, Quintet Allen, and our special guest, Jen Pacha Howell, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.